Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. Love is incredibly risky. Some would say probably it is the ultimate risk. Um, sometimes, if you ask the question why, I think C.S. Lewis summarizes why love is so risky by this uh, statement. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. There are absolutely no guarantees when it comes to love. I want you to think for a moment of your first love, the moment he or she caught your eye and smiled at you for the very first time. That kind of sweaty palms, butterflies in the stomach, cotton mouth, racing heart love. Think for a moment of your first real kiss, the excitement, the anticipation, the nervousness, the uncertainty, the questions. I don't know about you, but I had tons of questions. Am I doing this right? What happens if my, my first kiss didn't necessarily go as planned? I waited 21 years for my first kiss. I'm, let's just say I was a late bloomer. And uh, for 21 years, I waited for my first kiss. And in the middle of my first kiss, my now wife, Deborah, pulled away from me, announced that she was breaking up with me, walked out the house, climbed in her car, and drove off. Um, there, is a, there is a context to that, and that's another st- story for another time. But I will just say this. I honestly didn't think my first kiss was that bad. I, I, really, I really didn't. <laughs> I want you to think as well, not just of your first love, but unfortunately, also with that first love, probably your first heartbreak. You see, it's called first love because it's the first time you realize what it feels like when you don't have it. That kind of punch to the stomach that kind of floors you. That fist that breaks through your chest and grabs hold of your heart. Whenever we face heartbreak, whenever we lose first love, it leaves us second guessing. There are no guarantees with love at all. Love is risky. Reckless love is risky. The reason why is because it puts our heart in a place that is vulnerable to the free will of someone else. I think the greatest display of love the world has ever seen was Jesus' death on the cross. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, he says, We can understand someone dying for a person worthy of dying for. How someone who is good and noble could possibly inspire selfless sacrifice to the point of death, but God demonstrated his love for us. He put his love on the line in that while we were still sinners, while we were separated from God and had zero indication of expressing or showing our love toward him, Christ died for us. I think the cross was Jesus looking firmly and squarely into every single person's eye, every person from every nation and every generation and declaring, I love you, and then giving us the freedom to decide whether we respond with I love you too or not. That's reckless love. And reckless love is the subtitle of our series for the next three weeks out of Luke chapter 15. It's called The Lost Found, The Reckless Love of God. At the end of this morning's sermon, we're actually going to go back into a time of worship. And we're going to sing a song by Corey Asbury called Reckless Love. And I love how he defines that particular phrase. I want to read to you a fairly lengthy quote of how Corey Asbury defines reckless love. Follow along as best you can. In calling God's love reckless, he says, I'm not saying that God himself is reckless. 
I'm saying that the way he loves is in many aspects quite so. He is utterly unconcerned with the consequences of his actions with regard to his own safety, comfort, and well-being. His love isn't crafty or slick. It's not cunning or shrewd. In fact, all things considered, it's quite childlike. His love bankrupt heaven for you, for me. His love isn't selfish or self-serving. He doesn't weigh up what he'll gain or lose by putting himself on the line. He simply puts himself out there on the off chance that you or, or I might look at him and give him that love in return. His love leaves the 99 to find the one every time. To many of us, sorry, to many of us, that's a foolish concept. What if he loses the 99 in finding the one? But what if finding the one sheep is and will always be supremely important to him? His love isn't cautious. It's a love that sent his own son to die a gruesome death on the cross. There's no plan B with the love of God. He gives his heart so completely that if we, if, if we refuse, we'd think it irreparably broken. Yet he gives himself away again and again and again, and again, time and time again. Make no mistake, our sins do pain his heart. 70 times seven is a lot of times to get your heart broken. Yet he opens up and allows us back in every single time. His love saw you when you hated him, and all logic said they'll reject me, but he replied, I don't care what it costs me. I lay my life on the line as long as there is a chance of getting their hearts. That's reckless love. That's the overwhelming love of God. And I think it affirms the reality of what scripture teaches, that God is, is, is no way measured in expressing his love for us. When we read the parables, we see time and time again, Jesus describing his father as one who is, who is, who, who is audaciously, almost incomprehensibly generous. Some of the psalms that Jesus uses, uh, sorry, some of the parables that Jesus uses to, to you know, to describe his father. He, he, at times, he describes his father as a landowner who planted a vineyard, only to give it all away for someone else to tend. The father, at times, is described as a wealthy man who left on a journey, but before he did so, he left his entire estate to his household. The father is described as a, as a farmer who sows seed so liberally and so generously that even some of it fell onto hard places where it was impossible for it to grow. But he wasn't concerned because there was so much more seed that he had available to sow. The father is described as a banker who set a man free by writing off a lifetime's worth of debt that was hanging over his head. The father is described as a successful business owner who rewarded his employees, both old and new, so generously that it even offended some of the older employees. He's described as a king who threw a wedding banquet for his son. And just because he wanted his banqueting hall completely full, he invited people from all over the village and beyond. And in the context of the passage we're going to look at today, he's also described as a father who gives his entire inheritance that was owed to the younger son when he asks. And to the older son, he says, everything else that I have is yours. And even when the younger son comes back completely broken and penniless, the father throws this extravagant and elaborate celebration. He's described as a woman who picks up a lamp and searches carefully and intently for her most treasured possession. And he's described as a shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. 
So with that in mind, I want us to look at the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 15. Now really what we should be doing is reading the entire chapter because to understand some of the things that we're going to be speaking about today and some of the things that I'm going to share next week and aid in the week after, we actually have to see that in the entire context of this chapter. But we only have time for the first 10 verses. So read along with me or look, look behind. The text will appear behind me. Luke chapter 15 verse 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I'll tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and she says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I love those two parables. They essentially are describing and explaining the same truth, and that is our incredible worth and value to Jesus. There are three things that I think Jesus is emphasizing here, three things that we're going to look at this morning. The first thing is this, is that Jesus is challenging our understanding of identity. Secondly, Jesus is, under, is, is challenging our understanding of worth and value. And once, we, once he's established or helped us to establish our identity and our worth and value, the third thing he's doing is he's challenging our understanding of destiny and purpose. So let's have a look at these three things together. Jesus, firstly, is challenging our understanding of identity. How does he do this? He does this by redefining, or perhaps I should say, by correctly defining what sin is. If I had to ask each of you to answer that question, what is sin? Take a moment, just in your mind, five seconds, just think of a definition. Think of your definition of what sin is. If, if, I, if we had to poll all of those answers, if we had to gather all of those answers, and, and even if we were to go on the street and ask people walking on the street what their understanding of sin was, I'm pretty sure the overwhelming majority of us would define sin something along the lines of, it's us breaking the rules. That's exactly how the Pharisees define sin in verse 1. They, they were frustrated. They were muttering because Jesus was hanging around with what they perceived to be the rule breakers. But Jesus is challenging the Pharisees. This, this parable and the two that we're going to learn next week, this, these parables are, are speaking to the Pharisees who were looking at others as rule breakers. Jesus gives a far broader, far deeper definition of sin. Sin is not just breaking the rules. The point that Jesus is making is that it's just as easy to sin by keeping the rules as it is by breaking the rules. We don't have time to look, but if we were to read the parable of the, of the younger son and the older brother, in verse 29, the older brother says to his father, he says, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. 
That sounds like a rule keeper. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, was the older brother any closer to the father than the rebellious younger brother was? Or was the older brother any closer to the father as the sheep, the, that rebellious sheep was to the shepherd when it went on its own way? And the answer is absolutely no. You see, sin is not just breaking the rules. Sin is running away from God. A Danish theologian from the 19th century defines sin as this. Sin is finding your identity in anything or in anyone but God. I love that definition. Sin is finding your worth, your identity, your value, your dignity in anything or in anyone other than God. It's just as easy to run away from God as a rule-keeping religious person as it is to run away from God as a rebellious person. In fact, I would even argue it's even easy, we would probably find it easier to try and define our worth and identity by the things that we do rather than the things that God has done for us. And that's the thing that got Adam into trouble in Genesis chapter one when sin was first introduced into the world. I love reading Genesis 1 over and over again because it speaks to me of God's plan for helping us understand identity and favor and blessing and purpose and, and, and God's destiny for us. God says, let us make man in our image and he creates Adam and Eve. That speaks of identity. We discover firstly our identity in the reality that we are created, that we are created in God's image. And then the very next verse, God, God, it says, and God blessed them, and his favor came upon them. Adam and Eve hadn't done anything other than just be, be, be created in God's image, and God pours out his grace and favor upon them. That's an understanding of true grace, friends. And having discovered his blessing and favor, then God says, be fruitful and multiply. And he defines their purpose. That order is very important. In the kingdom scheme of things, we first discover our identity in Jesus. We then live under the reality of his favor and blessing because we are in Jesus. And from that place, we begin to discover the things that God has called us to do. But you see, Adam wanted the blessing of God without God. He chose self-reliance over God-reliance. And that intimacy that he enjoyed with, that, that he once enjoyed of walking close with God in the cool of the day was lost as a consequence of sin. And what happened is that order of identity, favor and blessing and purpose, now that sin had broken into the world, is completely reversed. I'm sure if you think about it, you'll all agree that the world demands that we first find our purpose. Find what you need to do, the world will tell us. Find something to put your hands to, the world will demand. And be good at it. Live in the blessing and favor of it. Accumulate stuff, accumulate wealth and value and knowledge and information. And then you will be able to find your identity. That's what the world tells us, which is the complete reverse of what heaven tells us. You see, sin is wanting to be like God without God. And that was the lie that Adam, that, that Adam was sold by the devil. In Genesis chapter three, it, it tells us that, that Satan came to Adam and he said, if you were to eat of this tree that God said don't eat of, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. But the great tragedy is that Adam already was like God because he was created in God's image. 
Sin is wanting the blessing and the favor and the identity that only God can give apart from God himself. And that's what happens. That's what we're going to learn next week in the story of the younger brother. The younger brother says to the father, give me that which is mine, but I don't want any part of you. And that's what we see with the lost sheep. The lost sheep needed food. The lost sheep needed protection, but it wanted to find protection and food on its own. It didn't want to follow the shepherd in any way. Sin is thinking that we don't need a savior, or in the language of Luke 15, sin is thinking that we don't need a shepherd. And I want to say, friends, that's the very roots of the problem, because every single one of us are sheep that are in desperate need of a shepherd. When we read that analogy, that metaphor of the Bible likening us to, to sheep, can I say that's not a compliment? Don't think it's, it's, it's Jesus, you know, with a, you know, Jesus had a little lamb. It's not that at all. It's, it's not this idyllic picture of, of, of us kind of frolicking in, in green pastures next to cool mountain streams. That's not what the Bible is trying to communicate when it likens us to sheep. Sheep are helpless. Sheep are foolish. Sheep are completely dependent upon their shepherd. They are stubborn and independent and obstinate, just like we tend to be. In John chapter 10, which is a great passage on, on, on Jesus explaining his role as the good shepherd and us as sheep, he explains, he, he lists two essential needs of every single sheep, and might I add two needs of every single person on this planet. We need people to lead us, we need shepherds to lead us, and we need shepherds to name us. We need shepherds to lead us. We're constantly battling this reality of independence, this idea that, that I've got it, that I've arrived, that I can do it on my own. My current self looks back on, the, on, on my past self from five years ago, and I think to myself, oh my goodness, how much I've matured. But the reality is my future self five years from now will say the same thing about my current self. We never are not in the need, in need of growing and maturing. We need a shepherd to lead us. A little funny example there, over the Christmas season, our family have enjoyed kind of looking through some rather unfortunate, not so flattering photographs of each other from the past. And if you can show, put that photograph up, um, I look at those and I'm actually quite afraid. I'm quite shocked. My current self looks back on my old self from five or 10 years ago and I think to myself, oh my, oh my goodness, look how far I've come. Look how much I've grown. I told you I was a late bloomer. I told you I was a late bloomer. But what frightens me the most about those photographs is the fact that I'm afraid that five years from now, I'm going to look back on my current self and say the same things I'm saying about my old self back then. We are in desperate need of a shepherd to lead us. And that's exhibit A right there. But more seriously, a, a more kind of close to, a closer to my heart example, I distinctly remember a time in leading church in the city, a time that I'm quite embarrassed to speak about, where about three or four years after the church had been established, I remember being so grateful and so thankful to the Father for all that he had done, but distinctly remembering or thinking in my heart, thank you God for all that you've done, but I need to take it from here. And if there's one thing I've learned as the older I've gotten, if there's one thing the last year or year and a half has taught me is how little I actually know 
and how desperate I need a shepherd to help to lead me. We need to be led. But secondly, we need to be named. And to be named simply means to have identity and, and have, have some sense of identity spoken over us. The reality is, though, I can't do that for myself. And neither can you, because we either think too much of ourselves or we think too little of ourselves. And I can't look to any of you to speak, to, to name me, because you are equally flawed. I need a good shepherd to do that, to lead me and to name me. And, and could I suggest that sin is running away from the only one who can name us and lead us completely and absolutely. Who or what defines you and speaks identity over you? Who or what is your shepherd that names you and leads you? Jesus is challenging our sense of identity, but the second thing Jesus is challenging is our sense or our understanding of value. He's answering the question, am I worth it? And again, referring to John chapter 10, when Jesus speaks about the need to lead us and the need to name us, he makes this incredible statement, I am the good shepherd. I am gonna come and I'm gonna name my sheep and I'm gonna lead my sheep. And he gives us the reason why, because I know my sheep. And that word know is, is so essential in understanding our worth in the eyes of God. That word know is like the English word love. Love means so many different things. I love tacos, I love my wife, I love my family, I love my friends. Different expressions of love. And the word know is the same thing. In the Bible, in, in, in the New Testament, the word know can, can, can mean different things. It can mean to know something through learning to know something through observation, to know something from hearing, or in this context, to know something through experience. Jesus is saying, I know my sheep. I've experienced my sheep. I've experienced their independence. I've experienced their hard-heartedness. I've experienced their stubbornness. I've experienced their eagerness to do it alone. I've experienced their sheepness. Jesus knows us to the degree to which we have been sheep to Jesus. And yet, despite knowing us to that depth, Jesus says this, I will lay my life down for my sheep. That's the reason why Jesus is willing to leave the 99 to come after you. No matter what you've done, no matter how hard-hearted you've been, no matter how independent or pride-filled or arrogant you've been, Jesus is willing to leave the 99 to come after you. Are you worth it? Yes, you are worth it because God is described as the shepherd willing to leave the 99 to come after you. He's described as the woman who picks up the lamp and searches carefully and intently until she finds that treasure. You are worth it because there is great rejoicing in heaven when you are found. We are God's treasured possession, the Bible teaches. Are you worth it? Yes, you're worth it to the point of Jesus laying his life down for you. The great truth of the Bible is that Jesus is not just our shepherd, but he's the lamb that was led to the slaughter. The lamb that was led to the, to the slaughter to protect you and I from the wolves of guilt and shame and sin. No shepherd on this earth, no spouse, no parent, no significant other, no, no degree, no amount of money in the bank account is able to shepherd you like Jesus can. No other shepherd 
can lead you and can name you like Jesus, can define your identity. You are not valued by any other shepherd as much as you are valued by Jesus. And so lastly, we come to the last point. Having settled, having begun at least to settle my identity and my worth and value, he begins to challenge my sense of purpose and identity. You see, in the economy of God, God works in us in order to work through us. We receive in order to give. We are blessed in order to be a blessing. We are God's workmanship in order to do good, good works. We are found in order to find. God calls us to this purpose of finding others. That's the highest outworking of your calling and destiny in the kingdom of God. To go with them, to be found so that you can find Let me illustrate this quickly from John chapter 13. John chapter 13 describes the Thursday of the Passover weekend when Jesus is about to be crucified. He's about to go to the cross, to die on the cross for for the world. But before he does that, he does this prophetic demonstration where he decides to wash his disciples' feet. I mean, that statement alone should absolutely shock us. The fact that God is willing to wash feet Not only is feet washing probably one of the most disgusting things to do, it was incredibly degrading. It was a humiliation reserved only for slaves. But Jesus was willing to wash the feet that he had created. Jesus was willing to lay down his life for the ones that he had made. Why? Well, John chapter 13 verse 3 tells us, listen to this, Jesus Knowing that the Father had been given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, and then it says he took a towel and he began to wash his feet. Three amazing little truths out of that one verse that speak to the things we've been speaking of today. Firstly, Jesus knew his identity. It says there that he had come from God. Do you remember when God at Jesus' baptism spoke those words over him? This is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Jesus was settled in the reality of his identity. Jesus knew his worth and his value. It says there the father had entrusted all things to Jesus. And Jesus knew his destiny. He was going back to God. You see, when, when, when you and I become settled in our identity and settled in our worth and value and our destiny, we become people who are freely able to serve, no matter how apparently degrading it might be. Secure people are amazing servants. And Jesus is the ultimate example. Jesus washes our feet. Jesus carries our sickness. Jesus prays for our rescue. Jesus suffers for our sins. Jesus searches for us like a shepherd and a woman because he knows who he is and what the Father has entrusted to him. But the Bible tells us that Jesus is not the only one of whom it is said, this is my son. It's said of you and I. In Romans chapter eight, we are told when we are baptized with the Holy Spirit, we are baptized with the spirit of adoption. And by that spirit, we can cry out, Abba, Father. You and I are sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. And Jesus is not the only one of whom it is said all things have been given. Again, in Romans 8, Paul says this, He who gave us his son, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? We have been given all things. So if you are a believer and a follower of Jesus, then I want to say, like Jesus, you have come from God. You have been born of God. 
And so in Jesus, you are able to settle your identity. And if you are a follower and a believer of Jesus, then like Jesus, God has given you all things. You are able to establish your worth and your value in Jesus. And if you are a follower and a believer in Jesus, then like Jesus, you are going back to God. You know your destiny with Jesus. And so if you are a follower and a believer of Jesus, then I want to say like Jesus, you and I are able to take up our towel and wash the feet of one another. And you and I are able to leave the 99 to search after the one. And you and I are able to pick up the lamp like that woman did and search intently for God's treasured possession. This is the ultimate outworking of identity and worth and destiny. I wanna leave you with three very quick applications and I'm gonna end in the next two minutes. Having settled your identity, having established your worth, knowing your destiny, I wanna encourage you, follow the good shepherd. Follow the good shepherd. Follow him unconditionally. Following Jesus is not always convenient. Following Jesus is not always easy. Following Jesus doesn't always end in the way that we think it would. It doesn't always make sense. But every time you and I have followed Jesus, I guarantee you can look back and you can, and you can see he knows best. Follow Jesus unconditionally. But with that, we need to follow Jesus patiently. The Bible teaches that we need to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. This verse has just so challenged me this year. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Fruit doesn't grow overnight. Fruit takes time to bud and to develop. And repentance, think of repentance as changing our lives in order to center ourselves around following the good shepherd. Following the good shepherd takes time to produce fruit of that decision. Follow Jesus, follow the good shepherd unconditionally, follow the good shepherd patiently, and then finally, follow the good shepherd comprehensively. Follow the good shepherd totally. Have you surrendered everything to the good shepherd? As I was praying for this morning, I wanted to just leave two, two challenges before I get mad up here and then we're gonna get the worship team up to sing that song, Reckless Love. But I believe there might be some of us here who are already followers of Jesus. We've surrendered our lives. We've received the gift of life that comes through the person of Jesus Christ. We have been found, but there are areas I sense in our lives that are still, quote unquote, lost to God. Areas in our lives that we've hidden from God. Areas in our lives that we've held back from God. I almost feel like some of us are, are trying so hard in those areas. We're running and we're running and we're running and all we're doing is running further and further and further away from God. And I feel like today God wants his reckless love to overwhelm us. But it requires us to stop running. It requires us to stop hiding those areas. Maybe you're here today and you're hearing about God's risky, reckless, unconditional, unmeasured love for the first time. As we sing this song, God's Reckless Love, I wanna invite you, if you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, let the words of this song minister to you and allow the Holy Spirit to touch your heart today. 
Matt, do you want to come up and just lead us into that song and maybe get the worship team up as well? We're going to just end off the sermon and go back into a time of worship as we close this morning. Thanks, Matt. Thanks again for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us.